Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Can someone tell me what college football player made this gesture famous? Johnny Manziel. Did someone say Jalen Hurts? <laughs> He's too, like, perfect to do that. Um, yeah, Johnny Manziel, right? Uh, Johnny Manziel, who is also known as Johnny Football, was a quarterback for Texas A&M back around the 2012-2013 time frame. If you followed college football at all then, you know that uh, on the football field, his uh, time was marked by unexpected and incredible success. Off the football field, it was a much different story. Um, he had access to a lot of fame and money because of his success in the game of football, and so he began pursuing things that he even says in a documentary recently released that it's just things he ever dreamed of, two of the biggest pleasures being sex and money. So I recently watched this documentary, documentary chronicling his life, and I was struck by how upfront he and his good friend who kind of went on this journey with him, they were very upfront about the fame that they wanted. They had a bucket list of people they wanted to meet and all these different things they wanted to do, and they got to do a lot of it. They met a lot of the biggest celebrities. They got invites to the most exclusive parties, and this was the life that he lived. But in the end, as all idols that we chase do, it left him empty and alone. Um, as I was watching the documentary, there was one quote to me that kind of summed it up as I was watching it, not even necessarily in preparation for the sermon, I was just watching it and I screenshotted the, because I watch stuff with captions. How many of y'all are subtitle caption people? Okay, good, that's my people in here. How many of you hate it? Hate it? Oh, come on, get out of here. So anyways, all right. So I'm a subtitle person, and so I screenshotted as I was watching on Netflix, and, and this is the quote that he said. I have it on the screen for you guys. It says, when I got everything I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. All the money, all the fame, all the sex, all the fleeting pleasures of this age did not and could not make him feel whole. They could temporarily, temporarily give him a reprieve from the emptiness, but this stuff could not permanently satisfy him. And I, I even hesitate to use celebrities as examples because sometimes like their life is put on display and they're real humans with real emotions. And so I, I don't want to do that. I'm not trying to like pick on that. Obviously, I don't know him. But the point is that all people, just because his is on a bigger scale, doesn't mean that all people haven't sought fulfillment and satisfaction through things like money and sex. Both modern and ancient writers and philosophers have recognized that these two things are often joined together in the way that they are either used or misused by a person. And as the preacher of Hebrews begins to wrap up what we believe to be a sermon that was meant to be read out loud, as he begins to wrap this up, he recognizes that the misuse of these two things is not just a temptation for people out there, but also a danger for those within the church. The people of God are not immune to making these two things, sex and money, idols in our life, and running to them for satisfaction. And so in a list of other exhortations to the church, he reminds us of these dangers, and the writer of Hebrews is going to do what he is so faithful to do, 
and point us to where we can find our only true and eternal satisfaction, which is Christ alone. So good morning again, church. Welcome to this gathering of New Eden. As I said earlier during announcements um, that my name is Joel, I get to serve as one of the pastors and elders um, of New Eden Church. Um, if you're here today, no matter how you come in, no matter how you find yourself here today, um, I want you to feel welcome. And I don't think it's an accident that you're here. My prayer is that you are encouraged by the truths proclaimed corporately, not just me up here, but us all together through the songs we sing, through the prayers that are prayed, through us taking communion together, that you would be encouraged um, by the truths proclaimed by the gathered church this morning. Um, yeah, I get to serve, like I said, as one of the elders and an under shepherd to the chief shepherd, Jesus. Um, he's the one that we're here because of. So as you can see, we're continuing in our series through Hebrews. We've been in a while now, actually started it back January 8th, so the beginning of this year. And we are, after this week, two more weeks left. So we're almost there to the end. Um, we're slowing down a little bit here at the end. Um, then we'll begin a new book of the Bible probably James. It is very rare that we're not planned out like quite a ways, but um, the plan I think is to do James after this series after, when I spend some time this Labor Day weekend and planning it. So um, yeah, so Hebrews. Last week we started looking towards as he's closing his sermon, he gives us just this list of very direct and simple exhortations. I mean, they're very short and direct. Um, last week we saw the call to love each other, to love the stranger, and also to remember those that are in prison and mistreated. And so you'll notice a lot of that had to do with the way we treat others around us, right? Kind of the way we live our public lives. And then I love this though, because the gospel is so impactful that it doesn't just stay in either one area. Sometimes I think we want to pigeonhole the gospel to only be how we treat other people and don't tell me anything about my personal life. And then other people make it a purely private morality that it only has to do with what I do with my personal life and how I treat other people in the world around me doesn't matter. And the gospel affects both. It's, it's, it impacts, impacts every area of our life. And so this week, we're seeing these, these things more personal, marriage and money, right? Things, you know, sex and money, let's just not talk about, right? That's a lot of times how it is in the church, but we, we're going to address it because the text addresses it. So the exhortations are simple and direct. They're not hard to understand. They're pretty straightforward. But as we look close, I believe we'll see that they matter a lot because what we do with marriage and money, and this is whether you're single or married, what we believe, what we do about with marriage and money reveals where our satisfaction really lies. And so three simple exhortations from the text this morning. Hold marriage in honor, hold money loosely, and hold Jesus supremely. Hold marriage in honor, hold marriage loosely, hold Jesus supremely. Let's read verse four again. You just heard it read, but it says, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. So this is the first simple and direct exhortation. Hold marriage in honor. So we're just gonna break this down simply. What does it actually mean that marriage is to be held in honor by all? Now, real quick, because we can't talk about marriage and the marriage bed and being kept undefiled without talking about sexuality, I wanna say a couple things. So let me just set the stage. Um, I want to acknowledge that there are many of you in here, probably all of you in one way or another, who have experienced brokenness around either your sexuality or around the covenant of marriage or both. So this sermon will be incredibly limited in recognizing all of the different facets of that, okay? Because the text is kind of just simple and straightforward. But I do want to say at the outset that New Eden, our hope and prayers that we can be a place of grace, 
healing, forgiveness, and authenticity when it comes to any issues, including the ones that cut us the deepest. Either because of our own sin that maybe we have in our past or present, maybe last night, right? Or because of the sin of others against us. Sexual brokenness is a big part of my own story. Um, and so you're not alone if that's your story, and we want you to know that. So I'm asking for grace to just speak simply and concisely, because that's how the text is, and we want to honor that. So I'm asking for grace in there. And then what we'll do is from this, we'll continue to go into our community groups and our growth partnerships and, and process this together, care for each other in community. Because a sermon like today's could bring up wounds that maybe you thought were healed, and you're like, oh, that's, that's still there, right? Or, or some things from your past, right? So as that brokenness is brought to the surface, the hope is that together we'll just keep relentlessly running to an endless well of God's grace for healing and satisfaction, okay? So let me just say that at the front and then let's just start breaking this down, okay? So first we need to ask, what does he mean when he says marriage, okay? In the text, the concept of marriage is assumed, but I wanna take a second to make sure that we're all on the same page. So this might be reviewed for some of you, but it's a good reminder. The covenant of marriage is something that was first set up by God all the way back in the first garden called Eden. So God creates Adam and he calls all these things good, but the one thing that he says isn't good is that man was alone. Now, I want to be clear. Sometimes we have made this out as like this prototype that every person, if you're single, you're kind of insufficient or incomplete and you'll never be whole until you find that missing piece in your life. That's, that's not what's going on here in the context. It's not that Adam's relationship with God was deficient and so he somehow needed somebody else to, to have a full life. What it meant contextually was that Adam was given a mission. Right before this, it's not good for man to be alone, is that go, be fruitful. And so it's this idea that the mission that Adam was given to cultivate life in the world literally could not be done in isolation. He's called to procreate. He actually, like, like the act of, of procreation is joining God and the creation of other humans to expand his worship endlessly to the ends of the earth. And so that literally can't be done without woman. Right, and so God gives to Adam a bride and you have the first song of love recorded in the scripture. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this harmonious joining of man and woman commences. It is this beautiful story that the scriptures begin to tell, this covenant union of marriage that happens and God calls it good. And so this story begins to put in our minds as we go through the story of the scriptures, this idea about this covenant of marriage. And it begins to tell us something about that. So that's what it's telling for, for us is kind of like two people together, but it's also telling this big story of interdependence of man and woman to accomplish the mission he's entrusted us with. That's why we need women massively involved in the church. The mission that we see in the New Testament is go make disciples. We can't do that without men and women involved. It's indispensable, it's important. And so we see that through the covenant of marriage is a microcosm, but we also see it in the church as a whole. And so you have this concept of marriage, and it's so interesting because every culture, all times, all places, have always had some concept of marriage because God is the one that created it. And so by definition, the creator of something gets to define how it's used, how it's supposed to function, how it leads to life. Because humans like to take good gifts, like marriage, like sex, and we like to use them for our own benefit and our own good and twist them. But we believe, scripturally defined, again, 
supported historically by the church, we believe that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman who have committed to each other for life, okay? And so that's what we believe God has given to us. Now, all throughout culture, there are distortions of that, right? So in our context, in, in our 21st century context here in the States, marriage often is dishonored by avoiding it altogether, but still living as if you were in marriage. And a lot of times we'll share our sexuality but still keep separate bank accounts and, and you know, live a lot as a married couple, but not ever join in the covenant of marriage, okay? That's one of the ways that marriage is dishonored in our culture. Another way is that it can be completely redefined based on the whims of the cultural moment, right? So, so the waters of marriage have been somewhat muddied. But what I, wanna, what I want you guys to understand is that that's not a unique thing. Um, we would be a little bit naive to think that somehow the covenant of marriage is just uniquely under attack in our culture and our time. All throughout history, sexuality and marriage have had different distortions. And so, so what we're called to do is continue honoring and displaying the beauty of God honoring marriage covenants. In the time of Jesus, Marriage wasn't necessarily avoided like it is in our culture, um, but how one of the ways it was dishonored was that men would have sexual relations with multiple women other than their wives, and it was just okay to do that. Another big way that marriage was dishonored in the culture of Jesus's day is that men would divorce and discard women for any reason at all. There was even a popular quote from a rabbi that said, you could divorce your wife if she burnt the toast. And it was like literally this, just this example that whatever you want, you can divorce her and discard her. And this was a huge deal in this culture because women's sustenance was tied to their marital status. And so they could just discard them and they would become unwanted. And, and this, you, you have Pharisees come up to Jesus in, in the gospel accounts and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for you to divorce your wife for any reason? Now, they don't really want to know the answer. They actually, there were two competing views and they wanted to just make Jesus and, and be divisive. But what Jesus does, and this is important for us, is he affirms that God designed the covenant of marriage between male and female. And he says what God has joined together, man should not decide to separate. So Jesus himself appeals to the Old Testament scriptures and says, this is how God has set it up. Now, even Jesus goes on to acknowledge that there are times when in a broken world, divorce is permissible, the best of some bad options. And, and many of our stories have been affected by that. But he is clear that divorce was never the goal, okay? So, so but, but it's like there are times where that happens, right? And there's people here in our body, right? And so he is saying this as a single man, right? Jesus is a single man who was never married. He's honoring the covenant of marriage. He never says you are less than if you're not married or that you're deficient if you or maybe your parents have been divorced, but he does simply honor what God has set up as good and beautiful and right. And so this is simply what our, our text in Hebrews here is exhorting us to do. That marriage as defined by God is to be honored by all in the church. Not worshiped, not set up on a pedestal as the goal for everyone, but together honored. The idea behind this word honor, the root word here, is the same idea of treasure or value. And so he's kind of doing a little bit of a play on words because he's about to talk about money, right, which holds value and treasure. And so he's tying the value of marriage with the value of money. And both in their day and ours, often these two things were flipped. Money was valued, marriage was not. 
And so he's kind of saying that as a whole, the church, as the people of God, should communally honor the covenant of marriage. Not demean it, not try to redefine it, not worship it, but honor it. And he goes on to share and give some examples of the chief way that this is done. What does that practically look like to honor marriage? We were talking about that in preaching team. Like, what does that mean? Like, just be like, hey, marriage is cool. Like, marriage is good, right? Um, th that, that's not really, he gives some very practical ways. And he says, the chief way this is done, married or single, is through entrusting God with your sexuality. So we're gonna talk about sex a little bit, okay? He addresses first the marriage bed which refers as a way to talk about sex within the covenant of marriage. So a man and a woman that have come together, that's what we're talking about with the marriage bed. So he says, for those who are married, the way that we honor marriage is by remaining sexually faithful to our spouse. So it, it's a twofold exhortation, okay? And a lot of times we, we lean in on one or the other. First though, it's simple. It's what it says. Don't have sexual relations with anyone besides your spouse. But secondly, honor and serve your spouse in your sexual relations with them. I know people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't cheat on my spouse, so I'm good. But it's like, do you see sex within marriage should be mutually life-giving and pleasurable, not one-sided and rigid, okay? And, and this is something that at least the evangelical church in America, I think has missed a lot on. Um, I grew up and I'm not, I don't know if this was explicitly taught or it's just like what I heard in side conversations or what I took away, but I grew up, essentially hearing that a woman's primary job in marriage was to please the man. Like that was primarily how it went. Um, and that view is wrong. Like I, I'm not gonna go into a bunch of details, but I want you to hear me that God designed sex within marriage to be a mutually pleasurable and self-sacrificing experience. It is not a one-way street, okay? I could say more, I'm gonna leave it at that, but we wanna be able to talk about these things, okay? So he's kind of covering sex within marriage, but secondly, he also references sexual immorality. This is the Greek word pornea, um, which covers, and you'll recognize the root word of that, it covers everything that takes place outside of the covenant of marriage. And so again, to just state it plainly and concisely, one of the chief ways that the church can honor marriage is to agree with God about what he says. This doesn't mean that we always live it perfectly, okay? But we agree with God that the only life-giving, wholesome, God-honoring place of partaking in sex is within the covenant union of marriage. Sex is not, no matter what you heard growing up, an evil thing. It is a good gift from God, and when entrusted to him and used rightly, it is a joy and a delight. But when we take sex, which is a good gift, and make it a God thing, at that point it becomes a terrible and destructive master. So, so those who are single and not within a covenant of marriage, and that could be for a variety of reasons, one of the ways that you honor marriage is by entrusting your sexuality to God and agreeing with him that the act of sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage. If you're married, one of the chief ways is you entrust your sexuality with God and agree with God that the, the act of sex is reserved for you and your spouse in the covenant of marriage is a mutually life-giving thing. This is something that the church historically has always conflicted with culture on. It's not a new thing. I hear a lot like, oh man, you know, all this stuff is happening. There are things shifting and changing, but every time a culture has its thing, the church has always been counterculture when it comes to what we believe about our sexuality. So the pressures of this age are not a new thing, but they are still real 
pressures. And so I wanna say this, single or married, if there are struggles here, okay, um, please don't stay alone in this. I mean this, like I could talk about it a lot more, but let me just say this, married or single, let's be willing in the right rooms, the right spaces to talk about our sexuality. Let's not leave it to other people to disciple our kids and our friends Right, like they, we are going to hear messages about our sexuality. They are coming in, in many different forms to you all the time. And so will we just ignore it and put our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist? Like, let's not allow the shame of the enemy to cause you to bury your struggles, pretend they don't exist, whether single or married. Let's talk about it. God talks about it. Right? We talk about this like sex is a good thing. It's not as if the first time I said this, and my wife's probably going to blush a little bit, but it's like not like the first time God created Adam and Eve that like suddenly he heard some rustling in the bushes over there and God was like, What are y'all doing? How did y'all just discover those random body parts? Like that's not how it was. Like sex was a good gift and it has been incredibly misused. And so I acknowledge that again, there is brokenness and it has been abused. And some of you, again, I have some of that in my background. So I'm, I'm empathetic towards that, but we also don't want to just not talk about it, okay? It matters. We, we read in the text a sobering thought. It says that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers, okay? Which what this is getting after is that this is something that God cares about. It is not saying that there is no hope for those who have sexually sinned. That goes against the entire message of Hebrews and the entire message of the Bible. That is not what's going on, but it is saying God does care about this. This isn't just a flippant thing. And here's the reason why. Because the covenant of marriage was ultimately given as a foreshadowing and display of the union of Christ and his bride. Earthly marriage is not eternal. Jesus made that very clear. There's not earthly marriage in heaven. But it does point to an eternal union of God and his people, of Christ and his bride, of heaven and earth becoming one. Sexual faithfulness inside and outside of marriage points us to the faithfulness of Jesus to his people who he has never left or forsaken or cheated on with. He has always remained faithful to us. That is why we hold marriage in honor. And then secondly, we hold money loosely. Like, right, what is that? Like, where, you know, it just feels, you know, like that. But it, it, it does tie together, and I think you'll see it. He goes on to exhort the church. Uh, this is what he says in Hebrews 13, 5. Y'all can breathe a little bit now. Now we're going to talk, we talked about sex a while. Now we're talking about money. So the other thing the church isn't allowed to talk about. So here we go. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. So like our sexuality, what we do with our money reveals what we believe about God. The scriptures had always reminded the people of God to be content with the things they had and, th and that they were not to be marked by the endless pursuit and striving of getting stuff, right? It is why there are commands from the beginning to not covet your neighbor's possessions or spouse or anything else. This is be content and satisfied with what you have. 
Now, this, doesn't, this isn't calling to not work. There's plenty of scriptures that tell us, hey, it's good to, to work to, to create stability for your family and, and things like that. And, and there's good wisdom in saving and having a savings account. It's not saying be lazy and apathetic, that it's wrong to desire stability for your family's life. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is addressing our heart of contentment. Paul said, Philippians 4.11, I learned, so that's a process, in whatever state I found myself in to be content or satisfied, to trust in God. And so this is a danger for everyone. I think sometimes we think that like conversations about money are only for rich people. And the Bible does have a lot to say to rich people. If you go through James, you'll see that. Um, but here, it, it's the danger of falling in love with money is there for anyone, no matter your economic status. So if you're trusting your money because you have it or saying, if I had it, then everything would be okay. In the same way, we're still finding our, our, what, what our satisfaction is, is in the idea of money, right? And, and the reason we find ourselves loving money is not because we just want the actual paper and Ben can tell you about how much it's actually worth and how much it'll be worth and he read a book or something, I don't remember, so. Um, but anyways, right? it's not about the actual paper, right? It's what that money can give us, okay? It's, it's, it's the social status, it's the security, it's the comfort, it's the pleasure. Show me the money, right? Because money can show me a good time. Money can show me security. The problem is, it's all an illusion. It does not ultimately satisfy us. In the end, the love of money ultimately enslaves us and controls us. Money's not a bad thing in and of itself. It's a good gift, just like sexuality, to be stewarded, to be used in the right manner. But it is fleeting. Money can come and go in a moment. And so the preacher reminds the people of Hebrews to be free from the love of money, to hold it loosely. Do we actually view money as a gift to be stewarded for the good of others and the glory of God, right? I'm challenged when I ask myself that question. Is that really the way I view the money I have? If we do, it means we're willing to let it go if we hold it loosely, when we're called to, okay? Whatever that might be, I can't give you specific details. It's funny, I was telling somebody that the last time I felt like there was a really uh, hard-hitting passage on money was we were preaching through Amos. This is like three years ago now, um, or a little under three years ago, and uh, we were having a new house built at the time, and I was like second-guessing everything, like, is this, are we spending extra money here? And then we go to this passage, and we're like installing a concrete pad and a basketball goal for my son to play on, and you're laughing because you saw it, and it's a little over the top, and I'm like, should we, yeah, so I said, all that to say I can't give you the specifics like it's it's okay again to create good gifts for your kids and and to create a place of hospitality for your friends like those are not bad things but here's the question like how do we hold it what is our heart are we willing to help a neighbor to share our stuff and possessions for those in need are we willing to use it as a means of hospitality in the lives of others? Are we willing to, to give it away, right? And, and you know us in New Eden, like we don't beg for money here. Like that's not what we're about. We don't even give you like, oh, it's gotta be this percentage or whatever. Because if you really wanna follow it, it's like 20 something percent. It's not the 10 everybody talks about, right? Like we want you to give freely and abundantly out of, out of joy, which is what Jesus, which is what the scriptures say, right? 
So we might give to the various needs of the church, right? As we feel led and feel called, because um, there are needs that happen. We're honest about that. Um, but also giving to those that are going to plant churches among the unreached around the world, right? Like people like the K's and BNR and Alyssa eventually, like it, all these things, like we're, we're willing to do that because we hold it loosely. And, and I know like it's good for me to check my heart when like if I have an unexpected expense hit, right? And I'm not saying this is like, you know, you're, you're evil if you just are like bummed out. But like if I'm like, oh my gosh, like I had that money set aside for this or like this is what I was going to spend that on. And now it's gone on a stinking AC unit or something, right? You're like, ugh. And so, but like how do we trust God with our provision? Saying, hey, he's sovereign over this. Like he, you know, like do I trust him with this? And here's another, for me, my heart, like my lack of gratitude for my daily sustenance. Like there's times where it just hit me, like I'm sitting on the back porch and I'm like, we have a roof. We have, we have transportation, we have, um, you know, food to eat. My kids are able to have that. Like, like do I even say thank you, right? Like we, we just have a hand to us and we're never like just saying thank you, right? We're, we're so blessed in so many ways. Do we trust God, what he says about money? Because like, again, what we do with our money can be an indicator or a gauge for what we treasure. Okay, and here's a challenge. If you really want like a, I'm not a super like practical application, but here's one. Go take your most recent credit card statements or bank statements or if you're old school checkbook, whatever, and just print out your statements and just make you like a, a pie chart of what you spend your money on. Okay, I'll do it with you. It'll be pretty convicting, right? And I'm not saying it's all bad, but here, I didn't mean I'd actually do it with you and it'd be convicting for you. I meant like, I'll do it separately and it'll be convicting for me as well. So um, that's not what I'm offering. I mean, I guess I can do it if you really want me to, but um, yeah. So, so here's the thing though. This isn't meant to shame you. It's saying, hey God, help me. Like, let's put it on the table. Let's hold this with an open hand. Maybe, maybe I don't need this or maybe I do. Maybe I need to spend more money here, less money here, right? And here's the thing again, we do need each other in this, okay? We can't do it alone. Like I said, like the only subject that might be more taboo to talk about in the church than sex is money. And so what we do is we just walk this journey alone. Like I've had people, like, you know, you have an 18-year-old young person starting out like on their journey of like sustenance and they're even, you know, can I ask you how much you make? Like it's, it's okay to talk about even salaries and like what God's gifted us with, not so we can like flaunt it or anything, but like, hey, what is it like to, you know, care for a family of five? Like I'd like to know that someday or a family of six or like we can have these conversations. Maybe we need to ask when I've got to, if you, you're thinking about making a big financial decision, you know, hopefully you're, you're talking to those people close to you about it and saying, hey, like, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. Like, it's okay to do that. And that's my hope, that New Eden can be a place where we talk about money in a healthy way with the people you trust, okay? And so what are wise financial decisions? What might be unwise? What does a budget look like? What are traps to avoid, right? And we talk about these not with arrogance and judgment, like, right? Because just because someone started a class and they sold a lot of books doesn't mean that everything that person says is gospel truth, right? If you know what I'm talking about, like, I'm not saying it's all bad, okay? Like, there's some good principles. But here's the thing. Like, we, we do this together in community as the church. And so again, just like marriage, this all matters because it points us to something greater, which is the ultimate provision we have in Christ, the reason we can hold money loosely is because we know that God holds us fast. And so if we really begin to believe that, it will change us. If our grip on money is tight, 
It's because in our hearts, we believe that we need a backup plan for God's provision. He might own the cattle on a thousand hills, but let me make sure I got a nest egg just in case something happens. Again, I'm not saying don't save, there's wisdom. But what I am saying is that what is our heart posture? And here's the reality. I'm just gonna put it on the table. All of us in here, if we are trying to honestly approach the scriptures and take these exhortations to heart, you are probably feeling the weight of this. In, in one of these two categories, sex or money, right? You're probably feeling the weight of this because we've all messed up. Now, some of us, when it comes to money, might have more margin for errors than others, but we've all messed up with the spending of our money. We've all held money tightly at times. In regards to our sexuality, we have all experienced sexual brokenness, either because of our own sin or the sin of others against us, and normally both. Normally, this is just jumbled mess of a stew that we don't even know like where our sin begins and it ends, and it's just a mess. And so if all we did was take these exhortations, let's wrap it up, close it up. I got a good 20-minute, 30-minute sermon for once. Um, let's wrap it up and go home. There's some good principles. Go figure out money and sex life, and we're good. Like, if that's all we do, it's going to be empty and void. We have to look at what's revealed through marriage and money, or we're missing the point. See, what we all need more than the fleeting pleasures of sex, more than the faux security of money, is ultimate and deep abiding satisfaction in the person of Christ. And this is the last exhortation we see. Hold marriage in honor, hold money loosely, and lastly, hold Jesus supremely. If your hope is in either marriage or money, it will let you down. But Jesus stands as the true bread of life. He says, if you're hungry, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. I will give you water that will never let you down, where you will never be thirsty. I will give you bread that will satisfy you. He is the true spouse who will never leave us. He is our satisfaction and our comfort, our security, our chief treasure, and our joy. And if you want the ultimate proof of this, we look to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why he points to it and says, because I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know that this promise of never being forsaken is true as we look to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Even though we all in one way or another have been unfaithful, he truly is the faithful spouse. He is the one who honored his covenant so much that he remains faithful to his people even when they cheat on him with other gods as he's making this marriage covenant on Sinai with his people and they're cheating on God with this golden calf. The, the, the terms of the covenant, the two tablets are broken and he picks them back up again. He tells Moses to do it over again because that's how much he cares about him. He honored the covenant of marriage. He's the one who was, was given the wealth of the world by the enemy, offered it, and said, here, you can have all this if you'll just bow down and worship me, all the fame, all the pleasure, anything you want. And he rejects the wealth of this world to steward his possessions for the good of others. With his life and his death, he provides and cares for his church this is what Ephesians 5 says all this points to. Look at it, Ephesians 5, 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. Why does this matter? Like Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave up his life for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. 
He did this to present the church to himself in splendor. I don't care what the beginning of your story is. This is the end of your story being presented to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for. We see commitment and sustenance and faithfulness just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. Jesus literally gave himself up for his bride. He held marriage and honor and his possessions loosely even to the point of giving up his own life. If you don't think he meant it when he said we would never be alone or forsaken, look to the cross. See, what we are really after with sex and money is getting rid of that feeling of loneliness and not enoughness that exists and just won't go away. And so if we could just get that, whatever that, that thing is for you, I'll be okay. But ultimately, the only place we can know that we're never alone is in the arms of Jesus. And those of you that have tried to find fulfillment of those things can testify that, that they're not enough. At the end of the day, when you lay your head on the pillow, it didn't fulfill you. Like you're still back to it again. A spouse can't give you enoughness. Money can't give you that. A one night stand can't give you that. Friends can't give you that. It's Christ alone, the hope of glory. And so as we look to the cross and see that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to die to redeem us, to make us holy and pure, this is the hope that no matter your past, no matter your present, no matter your future, you need to hear this in regards to sex or money or whatever, Jesus can redeem you. You are not irredeemable. The story we see is like Hosea who marries this prostitute, takes her, has kids with her, and then she runs back to prostitute again. There she goes. And what does he do? He goes to the auction block as she's being sold, and he buys her back with his own money. Who does that? But that is the picture of Jesus that we see. And he redeems you, and he buys you back, and he makes you whole. He's doing the work. The reality of you as a new creation is just as real as the empty tomb. He rises from the grave, conquers sin and death and hell. And he's the first fruits of the new creation. All that follow after him, follow him, yes, into death, but into life and holiness. Your sexual wholeness is not some badge to achieve, but it is a gift bestowed to you from the work of Christ and Christ alone. You can't earn that. Your sustenance is not achieved by earning enough money and making sure you have enough. It is a gift from a good father. And all of this ties to where is our satisfaction found? All we ever need or want is found in Christ. Because Jesus has shouted from the cross that he will never leave us or forsake us. And I love this because he speaks the first word. Because God has said, because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then we respond in boldness. The Lord is my helper. 
I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And as Kevin pointed out in preaching team, sometimes you ask this question like, well, man can do a dang whole lot, it feels like sometimes, right? Myself can do a lot. Man can take my possessions, my sexual innocence, my retirement, my purity, even my life. But it cannot take the only thing we ultimately need, and that's Jesus himself. Death has been defeated. Sin has lost its power. So what else is there to fear? We no longer even have to fear ourselves and our stupid decisions that we make with sex and money because Jesus is with us and has promised to see to it that we are redeemed. That's the vision we see in Revelation. A bride adorned, ready, presented to her groom. And when we begin to grasp this, when we begin that in, to, to, to believe that when Jesus returns, like all abundance and provision will flow the streets. There will be no more want. There will be no more sin. We start to loosen our grip on the things of this age, these things that we have that just get us by another day. They begin to be released and we begin to trust God with our sexuality and our money. We begin to agree with God that marriage is to be held in honor because it points to Christ and the church. Money is to be held loosely because it is simply a tool to steward for God's glory. And Jesus is to be held supremely above all because he is our ultimate satisfaction. So wherever you find yourself today in regard to money or sexuality, I want you to be exhorted and encouraged. God himself has said that he will never leave you or abandon you. So don't lose heart. I know there's brokenness in this room. Some of it I know about, some of it I don't. I know there's things that some of you have that no one knows and you don't ever want anyone to know. But your stories are not over. There is still hope and a future of redemption. And it is just as sure as an empty tomb. So run to Jesus for your satisfaction because he is enough.